This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon from My Father's Place Radio. I love doing these shows. This week, we have comedian Stevie Gb. Now, I, I was very, very fortunate to be at the taping of the My Father's Place television show when they were doing the very, very first show. And I got to sit down and talk to Stevie Gb. And we had such a wonderful time. I said, hey, could, could we do a whole show with you? And he was gracious enough, gracious enough to say yes. So welcome to the show. And... Uh, Love your love your your material. You you first of all, could you tell everybody? You know, you've been everywhere. You, you opened for I think uh, Dion at, at Westbury. Yes. Where else? You, you've been all over the place and performed all kinds of places. Could you yes, just share I, a little bit? I of opened your... for Dion at Westbury Music Fair. Uh, was it's, it's not called that anymore. It's N Y C B L M N O P Westbury or something. <laughs> uh, I still call it Westbury Music Fair, like most Long Islanders. Right, and because uh, it used to be next to the drive-in. <laughs> that's right, the Westbury Drive-in. Right, which I, I'm not that bad. I, I, I at least have acknowledged that drive-ins are no longer in existence. But uh, Westbury Music Fair is what it is. And uh, yeah, Dion. Uh, it, it was funny because I told my wife. I said, "Guess what? I'm opening for Dion." And she said, Celine Dion? I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Dion. She said, Dion Warwick? I said, no, Dion, like Dion and the Belmonts. And she said, oh, is he still alive? Hey. <laughs> uh, he's still alive. He's 79. The guy had a stronger grip than most 20-year-olds when I shook his hand. So, and he was great. He was really great. And uh, it's been a dream of mine to uh, play there. Uh, and I was in the round. It was like 3,000. I think it was sold out. 3,200 people. So that was definitely my my most incredible gig I've had in 27 years of doing this. So w- <laughs> when you did the Westbury Music Fair, because that's I'm always going to call it that. Yeah. D- did you go round and around, or was the stage stationary for you? No, it went around, and you know I was kind of like nervous about it because I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. But I didn't even notice it because it turns very slow, and you know I kept like going back and forth because I was afraid the people behind me weren't so i was like turning around and but it was really quite comfortable it really didn't bother me at all and plus they had all this you know the whole band equipment was on stage so i really didn't even though the stage is big i didn't have a lot of room (laughs) was it weird for you having sort of a circular stage as opposed to the traditional it was a little weird but you know I, i was in a i was in a zone i just couldn't believe it was even happening so it was 20 minutes of being in an out-of-body experience. So it, it felt strangely comfortable, which is very odd. Before I went on, I was a nervous wreck, but when I got on stage, it was just, it felt good. Now, you, you actually participated in the taping of My Father's Place television. Yes. So talk about that. I was part of, by the way, I was part of the, so for the people out there who are actually listening to this, the back of my head is probably one of those shots. <laughs> <laughs> You know, with the, with the right. back of the heads of some of the people who are part of the staff there, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. but that was because I remember we were filming that. Uh, we, we, we filmed a lot of people for the first episode. There was Laura Hope. I think Taz played. I forgot yeah. who well. Um, it, you had a comedic piece. I think there were some other people as well. And uh, what was that like for you? And 
Oh, it was great. You know, they had uh, they must have had like six cameras set up, and uh, I think it was like I, eleven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm guessing it was eleven. That's amazing. Uh, I just it was a little weird because it was you know it was a small group, so it wasn't like having that huge audience. But people were great. They were very receptive, and uh, I had a great time. I just did my the best I could. I you know if I'm performing for ten people or, or a thousand people, I give it the same energy so i just did what i do and i think it went very well it was a lot of fun it, it was a lot of fun and i i think you know as as a fan of comedy that there's really not enough good comedy out there these days um, yeah what did what did what was the kind of comedy that you grew up with and what did you who did you like who did you see live what were your first experiences well i'm 61 so you know obviously uh, i grew up with uh I mean, my early, early days, I was nine years old and my mother sat me down and made me watch Duck Soup, ah. which is kind of a crazy thing for a mother to do <laughs> to a kid. Uh, so I was a big Marx Brothers fan early on. And Harpo in the beginning, because when you're young, Harpo was the clown. And years later, in the 70s, there was a Marx Brothers revival, and I became a huge Groucho fan. So even though he's not really stand-up, he kind of is. Um, that's really my one of my main heroes and then steve martin george carlin uh i mean i memorized class clown i used to go to school and recite the bits you know that was robert klein all of the, the standard greats that were big back then dare i say bill cosby i grew up with bill cosby it's a shame that he becomes unmentionable now but i grew up listening to his records and i was a fan now, did you listen to any of the Long Island comedians like Alan King, who lived in Great Neck? Or um... oh, I loved Alan King. Yeah, I mean, you know, we—I used to watch Ed Sullivan with my parents and my grandparents, and you know, there was a lot. There was a lot of comedians. Alan King was on, and Jackie Mason, and Joan Rivers, and I remember all of them. Yeah, they were great. Did, were you were you lucky enough to see Buddy Hackett live or, or live? Yeah. I, I actually saw no. Buddy Hackett at the Westbury Music Fair. And really? He I was saw Don hysterical. Rickles at Westbury. I saw Joan Rivers. I never saw Buddy Hackett there. He was, he was phenomenal. He really was. Yeah. Did, did, when you grew up, did you listen to Jack Benny? Of course. I, oh, Jack Benny. There used to be, uh, I think it was like once every six months or so, there was the Bob Hope special, if you remember that. Oh, I, Bob Hope was great. Oh, he and was, then it was yeah. followed by the Jack Benny special. It was like two hours of comedy. And Bob Hope was great. And then Jack Benny, I like Jack Benny better because he had that, you know, the, the silent humor. He was just brilliant. And he had that cast of characters. He always had Mel Blanc on. And uh, that guy used to go, yes. I don't know remember his name. <laughs> now, I, I'll give you some trivia. I met Mel Blanc. Oh, wow. And, and it, Mel Blanc came to my, the school that I was attending. And he gave a lecture. Uh, about sort of you know all of his voices and all of the behind the scenes, and he brought some of the the Warner Brothers clips of the Academy Award winning cartoons. Wow. And I remember one of them was Birds Anonymous. It was about you know Sylvester was swearing off birds. He went to Birds Anonymous, and, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. it was the funniest thing. Uh, he was having a hard time you know trying to you know be with Tweety and just be his friend or her friend whatever it was, and and instead uh, his I guess his coach was like, no, no, birds are our friends. And then he kisses Tweety and he goes, they're, they're, they're delicious. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And, and it was just right. And then uh, he autographed, he gave me an autograph uh, and he had all the voice. It was just, it was such a great thing because 
Wow. You know, who, who did, who did, you know, if you're old enough, you'll know Bugs Bunny, you know, you know, Speedy Gonzalez, oh, yeah. you know, all those of voices, course. you know, um, you know, it's hard, you know, if you ever watch Petticoat Junction, uh, one of the women who, I, I forgot what her name was, but she was Betty Rubble. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, there was like Uncle Joe and, you know, see, what's great is um, all the old TV shows are on Channel uh, 3. <laughs> right, <laughs> Me right, TV. Right. So you can watch, and I, and I saw on the internet, talk about the power and efficacy of Facebook, someone had a picture of all the Flintstone voices and Mel Blanc was there and uh, I forgot the woman who was Betty and it was just really, really cool. And, wow. you know, so going back to Jack Benny, I, you know, there's so many classic jokes from all these comedians like when Jack Benny's like being mugged and, and the guy's like, you know, come on, come on, you money your life. And of course, what does he say? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking. thinking, I'm thinking, right? You know? Of course. Right. And then of course, if you were a big fan of the Marx Brothers, you probably saw Harpo on, on the Lu- I Love Lucy. Oh, yeah, the mirror bit. Yeah, that was classic and timeless. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, Viaduct, Vi Not a Chicken. Vi Not a Chicken, You know, so, so I don't know. Now, that really was the golden age of comedy. Yes. I, I don't know how come it's not as funny back then. I don't know if just... We got older, jokes got different. Is there any observation on that? Or, Well, comedy has changed over the years. It, it's evolved. It's gone into different directions. And some, sometimes I struggle with this. I'm not sure if it's because I'm an old cranky guy now. Because I remember my parents not liking George Carlin and not liking Steve Martin. Uh, so I wonder if, it's, if, that, if there's that generation gap of... This isn't funny, you know. You want to see funny, you got to watch this. And but I, I did enjoy all the old humor that my parents listened to. Uh, I'm not sure if you know the younger generation today is so turned on by you know Carlin or you know I don't know. I don't really have that much of a conversation with them. But uh, I find that today's comedy has gotten a lot meaner. It's a little more mean spirited. Yeah. It's, it's more assaulting than uh, than entertaining and. I don't. Uh, that's new. I don't think any of those old time comedians, even Carlin, as edgy as he was, he never. I never felt like he assaulted the audience. You know. You know. It was at least a great experience for me when I saw Buddy Hackett. Yeah. I laughed so hard that I missed the jokes in between the laughs right. because because you were you were just killed over laughing. You yeah. would tell another joke, you kind of miss it. You'd recover. And then that next joke sent you back into another laughing fit. Yeah. And I don't really seem to see that experience anymore. I don't know if it's because joke writing has changed or there's so many jokes out there or um, some of the old comedy stuff is, I guess, dated or tired. I don't, I don't really know. Do you have an observation yeah, I think that, you know, it's a lot of different things. I mean, I, I try to enjoy, well, as a comedian, when you become a comedian, it's very hard to laugh. It's like you're around it all the time. I guess like how a gynecologist goes home and says, no, I see that all day at work. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> I'll have the soup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, so I'm, I'm a little jaded. You know, I feel like, ah, uh, yeah. So it takes a lot for me to really appreciate uh, certain humor, and sometimes when I, la- you know, I'm I'm analytical. I'm like analyzing the jokes. I'm like, oh, that's I could see the punchline coming, and uh, you know, kind of ruins it for me. Um, so it's I'm a hard guy to ask about that because being a comedian. But 
other people are laughing at stuff, and I'm I'm confused. I'm like, I don't I don't get it. I don't think this is that funny. So I don't know. It's it's a it's a mystery to me. So if you had a choice between sitting in a with a bunch of professional comedians and hanging out, or being with just a bunch of funny people, who would you pick? Oh, that, what do you mean, like fun? Like people just people who happen to have a good sense of humor, but are not really professionally inclined. Oh yeah, definitely. Comedians are are, are tough. Well, you know what it is when you're in a room full of comedians, it's hard because they're, uh, you know, they're either complaining about the business or they're <laughs> or they're trying to can you top this? It becomes like who's funnier. But you know, I have I have a lot of friends in the comedy business. I like I like a lot of guys and girls. Uh, so it's always fun. I love being on shows and seeing faces of other Long Island comics that I enjoy performing with. So we have a good time. Is it different for you to be in front of a camera or a radio as opposed to being in front of a live audience when you're well, telling, yeah. when you're doing your routine? How yeah, is it? How well, is it different? Well, live audiences is the energy the energy is there uh with a camera you're staring at a a black box i mean i try to pretend there's an audience there like i said before i give it the same level of energy because uh, i know there's people out there that are going to be watching this and i don't want them to think that i'm not able to perform so uh yeah it's a totally different experience what, on a day-to-day basis do you kind of walk around with a notebook and <laughs> do, you have, do you have like you know uh, inspirational moments where all of a sudden you can kind of just you know like like you know writing a book like today you could do twenty pages and then there's like a gap you know yeah. maybe well, do a half a page me, no I page do, I have I have creative surges like I'll go through a period where I'm just thinking of stuff and I write in my head first everything's in my head and then I I have my phone thank God it's, I don't really walk around with a pad and pen I am sort of in the 21st century uh, where I have a phone and I have a little notepad on the phone and I'll write down like a basic idea of what I'm thinking about. And then later on I structure it into what the joke is. But usually I'm thinking about the joke before I even write it down. And by the time I get to a point where I'm really putting it out, uh, it's already been in my head a few times. Uh, But I'll have creative surges where I'll just write for a week straight and then I'm then I've got nothing for a month. Tapped out. <laughs> it's just it's a weird thing. If I had to do this for a living, I'd probably have a lot. I mean, for where I had to sit down and write jokes every day, like like a uh, like a TV like a guy. Job, yeah, like a TV guy or something. It would be really hard for me because it would be I would have to force myself, and it can't force it. I have trouble forcing it. So I do have the uh, the luxury of being able to have creative surges and then just having completely dry spells. <laughs> now, where, under what circumstances do you have more inspiration? Is it sort of in crowded, noisy things or where lots going on, or do you need to sort of hit the parkway and go to Jones Beach and kind of sit out there, watch the seagulls and the, the wave of the ocean and just kind of reflect? <laughs> that is, that's funny. Uh, no, I, it just, usually like walking around the mall, like if my wife is shopping and I'm walking around, yeah, I, I tend to get, or in the shower, people, people say that a lot, in the shower yeah. I think of ideas, um, at, you know, sometimes in, in any environment with people who aren't comedians, and I come up with something funny, and then I just all of a sudden riff, and I got an idea, so it just kind of comes out of nowhere, there's really no specific setting that I need to be in 
to inspire me to write. It just happens. How about holidays? Are they are those comedic events or are those more like tragedies and drama? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're good. I, I have good family. My wife is my wife's family is great, and we, uh, um, you know, that's tough being a comedian on holidays because you get the same old. Yeah, I do this. I don't do this on stage, but it's very true. Your first year of comedy, your family says, "Oh, we're going to see you on um, Jimmy Fallon someday. Or we're going to see you on Broadway." And, and after about twenty years, they're like, "You're still doing that comedy thing?" <laughs> you know, they kind of. <laughs> so where are you playing next? You know, it's just they, they've lost all interest in your because you didn't reach the fame and fortune that they expected you to reach in that first year. Well, it's also harder. Now, we only have like a minute left in the segment, but is it, you know, when Buddy Hackett and Milton Berle and Bob Hope and George Burns and all those old comedians, those old school people, it was only basically sort of television and live performances. Right. There was no internet. There was no VCRs. There was no, you know, I mean, the Marx Brothers basically did movies and things like that. Now there's comedy channels there's comedy channels yeah. on radio there's comedy channels on television there's yeah. youtube i mean there's really no end to the accessibility of comedy has uh, so i'm going to ask this as we leave the break but the question when we come back from the break is if it's that accessible is it not as funny because it's not as rare so so well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave notes because we have to take a break but that's the okay. question coming in so for those who are listening this is richard solomon i'm with stevie gb uh, he will be playing at my father's place, but if you're hearing this in the future, then he played, but he'll probably be coming back. So hopefully we'll catch you one of the uh, one, uh, one end of the spectrum, another. Keep it locked in. This is going to be really fun and very insightful. We'll be right back. Hi, this is the great Thordini. You're listening to Richard Solomon on 88.1 FM WCWP. All right, welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon with comedian Stevie GB. And we didn't even ask him, like, you know, some of his background and things like that. So we'll get to that. But the question we had going into the break was sort of the old school classic golden age of comedy people. I Love Lucy, all those people either had television shows, live performances, or the roasts. And the accessibility of comedy was, was somewhat limited. There's only so much of it that you can get to. Now it seems to be very accessible. And I guess the question on the table is, because it's as accessible, I can go on the computer right now, and if I want to listen to a comedy channel on you know, some internet channel, if I want to go onto YouTube, if I want to look up old George Carlin bits, if I want to look up... Uh, I'm sure if I want to look up Marx Brothers or Groucho Marx or episodes of You Bet Your Life at, Mar at Groucho Marx, I can probably find all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the question is, because it's all accessible, has that diluted it and made it less funny? Um, I don't think it's less. It's certainly saturated the market. You know, there's too much out there. And, uh, but I don't know if that hurts it. A lot of people think it does. But I don't know. Funny is funny. I mean, if, you, if people are looking up old Marx Brothers bits and they're laughing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's great. Um, and we're lucky that we live in a time that we're able to do that. Because in the old days, you had to wait for it to come back on television. And it could take six months or a year or even years. Um, and I don't think it makes it less funny. I think what, what it is, though, is 
people are have a very short attention span. You know, they'll watch bits for a minute and then move on to something else. So, you know, there's not a lot of um, creativity. I think it stunts the creativity because um, there's not a lot of really long development periods for comedy. It's like it has to be funny now, immediately, and then, you know, move on to the next funny thing. You know, that's very insightful because, you know, if you watch like the Dean Martin roasts, those right. were funny and they were long. And, and now if you listen to sort of like the satellite radio comedy channels, they generally have segments for like three minutes and yeah. they move to the next segment and they move to the, So it's like every three minutes they're gear shifting. Right. You know, um, whether it's channel one, channel two, channel three, whether it's this kind of comedy, that kind of comedy. Because I think they have like, you know, the more, you know, generic comedy or the more adult oriented, you know, non-FCC word compliant <laughs> Yeah, and you see it in sitcoms. If you ever watch like old sitcoms, like the the original New Heart show, or like even like All in the Family or Barney Miller, which were great shows, but if you watch them now, you feel how slow. It's very slow. You know, there's development, and it's like the punchlines aren't coming so quick. Whereas if you watch these newer shows, it's just like punchline, 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 punchline. It's just very fast. And it's like you don't have the time to sit back and absorb, you know, what's going on. And there's no scenery anymore. Everything is just set up, punch, set up, punch, set up, punch, set up, punch. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So it's very fast. And that's because people have no attention span. So in your family growing up, who were the funny people? Oh, my dad all the way. Okay. Did he tell jokes or was he just funny or a little bit of... He he was sarcastic uh, to a fault. And uh, just funny. He, he just very quick-witted, always had something funny to say, made everybody laugh. And uh, my mom would laugh at his jokes. So, you know, there's nothing better for a kid to see than your parents laughing. And, you know, we would watch all the, the Ed Sullivan, the comedians, the Marx Brothers. It, it, was, it was a house filled with a lot of comedy. So no. I kind of grew up surrounded by that. So by the time I became... I was always funny, you know, and I, I already kind of knew timing. So by the time I had the nerve to go on stage and do it, I already had the years of practice. So how did you decide to break into comedy? Like, <laughs> what, how was, what was, when did you do the pivot? Well, it was, it was actually on a dare. I was uh, always the funny guy, funny guy in school. Maybe not the class clown, but one of them. Uh, and the funny guy at work. I would get a new job, and I would. I wanted to be the funniest guy in the office. More than that was more important than doing the job was being the funniest guy. I wanted to get everybody to laugh. And one day we went out to lunch, and one of the girls in the office uh, saw a sign on the wall. It was at the Jukebox Cafe in Hoppog, which was owned by Bob Buckman, W B A B D J. Sure, yep. He owned the place, and there was a sign on the wall that said "Talent Night." Uh, comedians, magicians, musicians win prizes, and she said, "You should, you should sign up." I'm like, "For what?" She said, "Comedy. You're funny." I said, oh, "Yeah, but that's different. I don't think I could do that." And the next day, she she came in and said, "I signed you up. You're going up next Wednesday. You get to do. You have to do 15 minutes of comedy." Did she demand an agency? <laughs> yeah, right. Now, at the time, I didn't know 15 minutes of comedy was hard. I, you know. You, you start out doing like three to five minutes. I had to do 15. I had no idea what that was. 
but I, I actually did it. I won third place in the contest. <laughs> And that was it. I was hooked. That's when I figured out this is where I belong. So, did, so, uh, so before that moment, did you ever go to comedy school? Did you ever no. go to acting school? or Nothing. Wow. I never took one class at anything. And my, my classroom was the Marx Brothers and Steve Martin and George Carlin Records. I, I knew it. I knew it. It's like when I got up there, I knew what to do. So... What kinds of jokes did you tell? What was your routine like? And did you actually write anything up, or did you just go up and wing it? Well, most of it was, was written. Uh, some of it was jokes my dad used to tell. I think I probably had a couple of, you know, old, old-timey jokes in there. Uh, so I just developed this routine, and it was, it was a little raw. It, was, it wasn't raunchy, but it was funny. Uh, I remember the first joke I told. Tell me. I want to hear it. You want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. I went to the library, and I saw this book there called Final Exit. This is a self-help book (laughs) written by a doctor on how to commit suicide, and it was in the library. Now, I'm thinking this book's going to be overdue. (laughs) That actually was was Kevorkian's book. Yeah, I think it was Kevorkian. Jack Kevorkian, yeah. If everything goes as planned, this book's not coming back. (laughs) Exactly right, exactly So right. that was a clever joke. So, you know, I was trying to be clever, and I think it's a good joke. It still works. And I guess at uh, the time, that was a hot current events topic. Right, yeah, that's yeah. what I was kind of tackling. Some, uh, it was around the time when Pee Wee Herman got in trouble uh, for being in the movie theater, yep. so I told some kind of joke about that. I, I was trying to tackle current topics, and uh, I did really well. And I was being very physical on stage and animated, and I had a lot of fun. Did you ever record that first? No, I ah. wish I did. That was 1991. I don't think there was recording equipment available. Oh, there was cassette recorders, and you know, <laughs> it was you know low low tech. You know, there was you know, it wasn't like wireless mics. But I do have one from the early days, maybe my third or fourth show, and I watch it and I cringe. But it was it wasn't bad. I mean, I was getting laughs. Okay, so who 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 taped it? Who taped it for you? Oh, a woman I used to work with. I forgot her name. Okay, Rosemary something. Now, if you were to look at that tape today, and yeah. look at a tape of what you would do this week, could you see your personal evolution? Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah, and- I yell at myself when I see old. Even when I I used to tape myself on tape recorders, and when I hear it, I cringe. I'm going too fast. My timing is off. Uh, I'm stepping on my punchlines. You know, I'm doing all the wrong things. I was still getting the laughs, but I was my technical uh, ability was not developed. So, to hone your technique, would you practice, or would you actually watch more comedy or watch it live? That's interesting. Uh, some comedians don't like to watch comedians because they're afraid they might, you know, pick up a joke that, and they don't want to steal it. Uh, I enjoy watching comics just for the timing purposes and the technique, not so much the material, Uh, just to watch how they animate the joke, how they tell the joke, and uh, how they act it out. And uh, I mean, one guy that's very popular now is Sebastian Maniscalco. Okay, I I don't know, but go ahead. Oh, he's huge. He sells out Madison Square Garden. It's crazy. And if you, he's got like three Netflix specials. I, mean, I can't believe you don't know him. Uh, but everybody loves this guy. And I watch him, and his material is 
there's nothing groundbreaking. He's very mainstream. You know, he's kind of like a little bit of everybody. He's a little bit of Bobby Collins. He's a little bit of Andrew Dice Clay. He's got Seinfeld in there. And you could kind of see the technique that he's sort of lifting from everybody. But he's so animated and he's so uh, good at telling the joke that he's hilarious. And and do you watch him to pick up techniques? Yeah, to kind of pick up, oh, I see what he's doing there. He's, he's making that joke work. Like if, The way you know a good comedian, if you, if you go see a comedian and the next day you tell your friend, this comedian was so funny, he said this joke, and your friend goes, that's not, I don't get it, it's not funny at all. That's how you know the comedian was good. Because okay. he was able to deliver it where you laughed. Like if you repeated Buddy Hackett's material to somebody else, they may not think it's funny. I, there's no way not, I could because you're not a comedian. There's no way I could give it any justice because right. You know, first of all, it's his personality, it's yeah. his physique. Um, right. I think he came out. Uh, I think he had his son out there for part of it, and then he came out with a bathrobe. And <laughs> I think he was. He was. I think it was something. The joke was something along the lines of. They went to Vegas, and then he kind of got like you know, a, a, you know, a, a massage, and then he came out with a bathroom. He said, "Look, it was hot. I didn't want to bother your mother." You know, it was just, you know, it was just really funny because he he did it in such a way that you know his personality, his stature, the bathrobe. I mean, you just can't really just retell that. Right. It, was, it was like a three-dimensional joke as opposed to just a joke. You know? Yeah, it's one of those things where you say you had to be there. Right, and I don't know that if you put 20 people all up there and gave them a bathrobe and sort of the same thing, that it would have been delivered just as good. I mean, it was just exactly. something, it was, it was really his joke, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, another example of that is like the, the famous Abbott and Costello, who's on first bit. Yes. To me, that is the best written comedy routine ever. That's like the top, that's the golden ticket of comedy routines. The way that routine was written was so brilliant. But what made it work even better was the way they delivered it. Right, because Abbott and Costello really just, you know, were, were, had a unique chemistry. Yeah. You know, and it was just sort of the, their physical nature and the whole bit. Is, is there actually like a comedy hall of fame? I, there's a comedy... Uh, uh, place up up upstate now, uh, museum comedy museum or something, right. and I think that's sort of a hall of fame. They have like George Carlin's uh, something with George Carlin. I forgot what it was. It was the seven um, words you can't say on TV. One of those. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But they have like some artifacts, and it is kind of it's more of a museum than a hall of fame. Okay, and I, I don't think there's a comedy. I think it's called the National Comedy Center or something like that. Well, I know that opened. I know that Lucille Ball has a museum in Jamestown, New York. Yes, you know that uh, I haven't been there, but I've actually seen it. Um, you know, talked about either on like uh, the anniversaries of her, like say birthday or right. things like that. And I remember that it's like a, you know something that they've really had in the in the the media where you see people who look like Lucy and then they think they do the the chocolate factory scene and yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know all that other stuff and and you know there was, I think there was a time where her show well you know the I love Lucy show was played somewhere in the world every day day after day year after year because of wow. 
of her of her immense popularity. And and I remember seeing like a clip where they showed the various scenes dubbed in different languages. So you'd see it in, you know, you'd see it in Spanish, you'd see it in Italian, you'd see it in like, you know, whatever. It's amazing. You know, and it, just to show you how 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 she was really able to penetrate the whole world, you know. Yeah, that, universal. It, you know, as opposed to just being like a local, you know, American Hollywood, you know, kind of, you know, actor, comedian kind of thing. Well, because it was physical comedy, there were so many elements to her comedy. I mean, physical comedy, that's the thing, you know, I just said that to somebody recently. I feel like physical comedy is over. I think Kramer was the last physical comedian. And he got in I mean, trouble, too. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, Seinfeld, Kramer was a physical comedy. That was physical comedy. But you don't really see physical comedy anymore. It's kind of like a, it's a dying art. Well, that's you know, kind of sad. Well, you know what's kind of really funny about Lucy? Lucy herself was very famous, and yet in all of her episodes, she was always starstruck. William right. Holden, John Wayne, you know, yeah. she always, you know, she was always trying to find access to these famous people, Harpo, yeah. whatever it was. Right. And she was always such in awe of them. And, uh, and then well, Ricky that was her be, character. Right. And then Ricky was like, no, no, you know, leave these people alone. You don't bother right. John Wayne, you know, whatever. Well, and, it was a unique character because, you know, back then it was the 50s, the housewives didn't never left the house. And, you know, she was, she was the housewife that had this access to these people because her husband was a nightclub performer so i think she was identifying you know people can identify with her ability for, that she was starstruck because they would be starstruck and i think you know she connected with people on that level right but i get but but to me the funny thing is here's someone who's internationally known and loved and right she's, right. she's so starstruck by you know all these people who she probably had coffee with, <laughs> and that's yeah, how she got she them to be on genuine. the right. She probably that's how she probably got them to be on the show in the first place by that's true. by saying to John, "Hey, will you, you know, will you do me a favor, do you know, we do some shtick with us, you know." Yeah, well, I love Lucy was the biggest show on television back then. Well, you know, I guess when there were only a limited number of channels. Yeah, well, we have four channels, right? Right, it was two, four, seven, and thirteen. Two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. <laughs> two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven. But yeah. only two, four, and seven had the shows, and you know, five, nine, and eleven had like news and you know, talk cartoons <laughs> and and like the Magic Garden. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I covered the Long Island Music Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony, I think, in two thousand and seven. Had a press pass, the whole bit, and. Carol and Paula from the Magic Garden were there, and it was so wow. funny because here they are, so much, so many years later, you know, and and they would be like, "Oh, you're all grown up, and we're so proud of you," <laughs> you know, because because half the people there probably were children thirty years prior or something right. like that. So it was kind of funny that they would meet everybody and go, "Oh, you, you know, we're so proud that you're all grown up and you're a reporter," and <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we only have a minute left in this segment because it's you know it's it's flying. Well, I want to talk about a little bit about you know what you did before comedy and how that maybe shapes your comedy today. So okay. for for all of those out there, this is Richard Solomon uh, on my father's place radio. I'm glad you're here. We have Stevie GB. Uh, we'll be right back. Keep it locked in. And if you want to find Stevie GB, just go on the internet, get your favorite search engine. Put in Stevie 
S-T-E-V-I-E-G-B, and uh, search and you'll see all of his social media and all of his digital content. There's a lot of good stuff out there, and hopefully this will become a part of that collection too. We'll be right back. This is Russell Hitman Alexander from the Hitman Blues Band, and you are listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. All right, everybody, welcome back. Richard Solomon, my father's place radio, also sometimes appears on the same uh, networks as Taking Care of Business, sometimes called Out of the Question. We're We're here. We're glad you're here. Thank you for listening. You can catch all of our content on my father's place radio, uh, look under myfathersplace.com. You can go to my website, which is thesolomonchannel.com, and you'll see all my different channels and shows and things like that. We are with comedian extraordinaire Stevie GB, and uh, we're having just a great, insightful discussion about comedy and you know all, uh, uh, performing and jokes. And, and if you didn't catch the first part of this, and you're listening to this on FM radio, we'll definitely have this on YouTube and all of our other platforms. Uh, it's great content, and thank you, Stevie, for you know spending time with us. Oh, thank you. Know. Right, so, when you, when you, you where, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, and uh, I was there till I was fourteen. I went from uh, I was in East Flatbush, a bunch of kids my age. It was a wonderful experience, and then next thing you know, we were on, in East Islip on Long Island at the age of fourteen, uh, which is the subject of my show that I'm doing at my father's place, <laughs> Welcome to Long Island, uh, about that culture shock. And uh, I think that shaped my future, my whole life, really. Well, how is it different? Because I, I, I'm sure, like, on, on a basic level in Brooklyn, you walk out and you can walk anywhere, and I'm sure that really wasn't necessarily the case in Suffolk County in those days. Right. So, no, so it wasn't at all. <laughs> so, so tell me, what was the culture shock like, and how did that translate into comedy? Well, you know, it was, you know, Brooklyn was, you walk outside, like you said, and it was all street games, you know, stickball, wiffle ball, kick the can, and playing with uh, 30 kids my age, and never a dull moment. And then all of a sudden, you're on Long Island, and they didn't play games. You know, we hung out in the schoolyard, and smoked pot, and threw rocks at the school, and (laughs) (laughs) it was, uh, what's going on here? It was just a totally different environment. It was like moving out to the to the country. Uh, so, yeah, that was, it was culture shock for me anyway. At 14, that's a pretty impressionable age to uproot your, your way of life. So why did so, your parents not wait till you graduated high school and then move? Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, Brooklyn, this is like late 60s, early 70s, and Brooklyn was becoming uh, a little more... Uh, integrated. I don't know how to put that without sounding bad, uh, but things were happening. You know, they had busing. They were busing kids from bad neighborhoods into good neighborhoods and to get them to fill up the schools. And there were riots. It was just, it was bad. So here you are now in, in Islip. Yes. What, so <laughs> what, what was school like? Because it must have been really different. It was very different, and it was, uh, well, what was weird for me was I moved in ninth grade, and when I got here, they were behind. They were learning things I already learned, so it wasn't hard, 
And uh, but the kids thought it was cool that I came from the city. They, you know, they would ask me questions like, "Did you ever get shot at?" <laughs> and I'd be, "Oh yeah, every day, every day they were shooting at us." You know, there was this illusion that New York City was this, you know, Brooklyn was a scary place. But, so I kind of had that advantage. Well, you know, that's kind of funny because um, I, I went to a summer camp uh, that was more suburban uh, and not in New York. And I remember people saying, oh, you're, you're from New York. You know, same kind of thing, you know. Uh, you must be tough. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, not really. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, they think New York is, you know, you can walk everywhere, you know. And not really. It's not, that's just certain parts of New York, but yeah, there's that New York attitude that they just automatically give you, whether you have it or not. Right, so, so, so you grow up in Islip, you graduate high school, where, where, where do you go next? Uh, East Islip, and then I went to college, I went to a couple of colleges, I went to uh, uh, Farmingdale, then I went to CW Post, and I ended up at New York Institute of Technology, and uh, became an accountant. Uh, which is which is a, 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 you need to be an accountant to do comedy. That's of course that goes hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> off air, I'll tell you my favorite accounting joke. <laughs> oh, there you go. No, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell that to you off air because that. Oh, you know, okay. Yeah. No, because th- this is your show. I'll just you know. But but yeah. Um, so you became an accountant, and yes. then and then what was that like? You know, what did, did you do? Uh, public accounting? Did you do taxes? Did you? No, I didn't really get into public accounting. I worked. For private companies, uh, I you know financial statements, closing the month, became a controller of a company. You know, I did pretty well in it. You know, and uh, and it's it's not so bad. I mean, the good thing about accounting is you can work anywhere. It's not like you're an electrical engineer and that's all you can do. You know, they need accountants in every different. And it was interesting because I liked learning about business, and it wasn't so bad. I didn't hate it. Are you still an accountant today? Do you still? Yeah, yeah, right now I'm like sort of semi-retired. I'm working part time, doing more more consulting uh, type work, which I enjoy. Uh, and yeah, it's not too bad. I don't mind it. Do you ever, do you ever crack open the tax code for jokes, or you know? No, <laughs> no, there's nothing. I tried to do some accounting jokes, and they were just like they didn't work. <laughs> so did did your work in the world of accounting? have any influence or impact on your comedy? Or is the comedy a relief from the nature of it, the accounting? Purpose? Well, what I like to say, this is, this is what I like to say. Accounting is, what I, accounting, accounting is what I do, but a comedian is what I am. Okay. Isn't that cool? That is I cool. I like that. That's what I like. And then I say the world's funniest accountant. That's my kind of moniker, which is <laughs> funny. Because, you know, people always don't think of accountants as being funny. Well, once in a while I get, well, you know, Bob Newhart was an accountant. I get that once in a while. I thought, I thought in TV he was like a psychologist. <laughs> he was, but, but in real life he right. was an accountant. Right. But, but you'd think that as a comedian he would be an accountant to reflect his real life. Yeah, you think yeah. he would use yeah. that, but he never really did. He never really let on. So, you know, accounting is like the driest of the, the professions so thinking of a funny accountant is funny. <laughs> the oxymoron. So do you mentor people? Do you, do you have, you know, budding comedians come to you for a little... I've done that. I've done that. Uh, I did start doing something like, like a, a comedy consulting type thing. Uh, it's fun. I don't mind doing that. Now, are these like workshops or are these more informal? Or What I do is one-on-one. I do like, you know, over the phone or I say writes write some jokes, send me an email, I'll decipher it, try to break it down, make it work better. 
send me a video. I'll watch your stage presence, see if I can help you make it funnier. And, uh, yeah, I've done that. I, I enjoy that. Now, have you ever been part of a panel, like where maybe you and a couple of other people sort of um, also try to add different insights to budding comedians? Sort of like, you know? uh, yeah, I think I've done that. I've done that once or twice. It's okay. Do you like that better because you get different points of view, or do you like sort of just the one-on-one? I kind of like the one-on-one better. Because like I said before, what happens with comedians, you have too many comedians together, it becomes a contest of, you know, who could top this, you know? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure styles are... Different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there any kind of guidebook for comedians, or is it really just you have to develop your own style, your own brand, so to speak, and that becomes your moniker, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's, there's obviously there's this formula. There is a formula to comedy, and you could learn that in a comedy class. But uh, develop your own style, that's a persona. That takes time. That because, You really have to be personal. You have to start talking about your own life, and then you develop. It's the truth. You have to, it's really the truth. As soon as you get to the truth, that's when you become your persona, and it becomes your comedic persona. Can, Does that make sense? Yeah. If some, if somebody was just not naturally funny, mm. could they become a comedian? Or is it just you need to have a little... It's like music. You have to have some kind of... Personally, I think, yeah. I think you have to have some kind of groundwork. You had to grow up in a funny family. You had to be exposed to a lot of comedy. I don't think you could just drag somebody off the street and say, hey, be funny. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean... Some people may think differently, but uh, I've seen comedians, and I'm doing air quotes, you can't say it, but I'm doing air quotes. I've seen comedians who think they're comedians, and I'm like, you shouldn't be doing this. Maybe you should try something else. Go back to brain surgery. This isn't working out for you. You know? No, I think there's a special skill there, and, and I think you have to have it. I think there's something that's inside of you that makes you a comedian. Do you, when I when I have I've interviewed a number of different people who are in the comedy profession, mm-hmm. and they do say it's a tough profession. Yeah, would you agree with that? Is oh, of course. A lot of road like work, a lot of schlepping. Yes. Do Do you do your own booking? Do you have an agent? How does that work? I do my own booking. I have bookers. You know, I don't really have an agent or a manager. Uh, I have different people that book me, um, and I book myself sometimes. You know, I get, to, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I get around 50 or 60 gigs a year, so I'm busy. Do you, do you try uh, to stay local or do you go everywhere? I do. I stay local. For for about a couple of years, I, I did some road work and I really didn't enjoy it. Uh, I'm getting older and it's harder to drive far in the dark. Yeah. I get, you know, it's a lot of work to get there. You know, you, you get 30 minutes on stage and it takes, it's like four hours of, of hassle <laughs> and waiting around. It's a lot like being a lawyer because, you know, in many ways, you know, you'll drive something or, you know, there's like, let's say you have to go to court in Riverhead. So you drive all the way out to Riverhead and then you go there and you have your court appearance and then it's not really that long. And then you come all the way back and, right. you know, it's a 165 mile round trip and right. it, it takes six hours. And yet 
you kind of feel like, wow. If yeah, now think about that on a Friday night going to New Jersey. You know, now you've got to leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to get to the sh- to place by 7. <laughs> yeah. In traffic, Belt Parkway. And then you finally get there, and you've got to wait another hour and a half to get on the show. And then you get on the show, and now you've got to drive back home. You know, it, all of a sudden, it's a 12-hour day for 30 minutes work, you know? Right. Now, something that the comedians that I've interviewed also said is that you sort of really need to start your career early on. Uh, right. Because I guess the financial hardship endurance is a little bit easier when you don't have a mortgage and family and people you're supporting. Um, right. You can kind of start evolving and changing your style and, and being more experimental and you can have more failure um, early on to hone your craft. Do you agree with that? Was that your situation or not? Yeah, well, I was always working. It was it was always more of a, 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 I hate to say the word hobby, but I guess it was a hobby uh, because I was working full-time and doing this on the side. And uh, until I really, like, got into it fully or more than uh, – more of a hobby, more than more like a second job than a hobby. Uh, that's when I started develop really getting stronger and better. Now, but yeah, I kind of agree with their, what they're saying. You have to kind of make all your failures up front and, and develop. Yeah. <laughs> it takes years. It takes at least five, seven, maybe even ten years to get to that point. Wow. Now, how do you, how do you brand yourself out there? To, to get to be known, to be someone that people call, um, especially, and then I guess, do you prefer being part of a roster of comedians, or do you prefer to sort of be the, the opener for like a music act or, or some other kind of way of entertaining? What's what's the thing that you? Well, like? I take anything. I really don't say no very often. No, but what, uh, what's your what's, but what's your preference? Ah. Uh, I like to be diverse, you know. I like I like writing the one man shows and being the show and being the whole night. I've been doing an hour. I enjoy that. Uh, I also enjoy being part of the roster, like when I do the Long Island Comedy Festival with Paul Anthony. Yeah, uh, he hires some really top notch comedians, and they and they're in theaters and they're great shows. You know, doing my father's place is awesome because it's like a, it's a theater. People are going out for the night, and you're the entertainment. It's it's great, you know, and uh, but I also like the private party aspect where people call me up and say, hey, we want to hire you as a comedian for a party. And, and that's fun, too, because you know, you're like going in. It's like without a net, you know, now, so I kind of like that that part of it, too. Now, on the private parties, do you need to know a lot more about the party and the people and the, maybe an honoree or a birthday or an anniversary? Sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll give me some inside information if uh, if they want if they want it, or I just go there and do my normal routine. But it depends on the situation. I, I work clean, too. I get a lot of work because I work clean. So they're always like, oh, we need to talk comedian, but you got to be clean because they're afraid. They don't want to offend somebody. They don't want somebody to be upset. So, you know, I kind of publicize that I can work, that I work clean. And, uh, and I play to the audience. If it's an audience filled with older women, I know what kind of material they're going to like. If it's an audience full of all men smoking cigars, I know what they're going to like. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of you kind of have to adjust your material a little bit for the audience that you're playing in. So when you that's get, another thing that takes time. When you get to a venue, 
do you actually walk around and mill around, or do you just kind of get up on stage and then look look everybody over and kind of get the feel then? Oh no, I like to look around, and I, you know, if, if there's comedians on before me, I try to get a feel for the room. Uh, if I know the comedian, I say, okay, he's doing really well, so I'm I'm going to do well, or he's having a hard time, I got to work a little harder, you know. So it's <laughs> it's very it's every everything's different. Every you can I could do the same twenty minutes one night and kill, and do the same twenty minutes the next night, and you know, not do so well. Not really bomb, but, you know, just different responses. It's a very weird thing. So we only have like a a minute left. How's the sound and staging at my father's place? Oh, excellent. Yeah, because I've heard from musicians how great the sound is. I've seen them set up the sound system. And and I I assume because it's it's big enough and small enough that I think is... I assume the staging is all is great for a comedic performance. Oh yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's the lighting and the sound and the and the size of the stage. It's uh, much better than a lot of the places I've played. You know, I've been in places where you're pretty much standing on a milk crate, you know, just <laughs> like <laughs> or a flat floor where there's no stage. I've been in those situations. Or you're on a dance floor. It's, you know, you make the best of it where there's no lighting or the sound is terrible. But my father's place has all the right elements. It's just, it's perfect. I know that they really sweated the details when they put yeah. that all together. So, you know, the, Alex Ewan was the, the, the sort of the, the person in charge of the sound, but he had, he had some great help from a lot of technical yeah, people. Yeah, good guy. You know, including like David Eng, and we had also these mm. great sound, sound people, sound engineers and stuff like that. So, all right, so our show is over. Is that is that sad or what? It is sad. <laughs> that, I could have talked for another hour. You know, well, what we'll do is this. We'll have you come back. But in okay. the meantime, uh, it's Stevie GB. Go look him up on social media. There's all kinds of stuff out there. Um, if you can get to see him on your social media, do you have all your performances listed yeah. for your tours? All right, so check him out. Go, go see him. If you do see him, just say, hey, Rich Solomon says hello. <laughs> so he'll know, he'll know that you, know, you saw this. You saw this thing on either YouTube or, or my father's place radio or the podcast. So until That's then, great. have a great week, everybody. Stevie, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. All right, we'll see you soon. I'll see you. On, I'll see you at the performance. All right, sounds great. Thanks a lot.